I'm driving down a bumpy dirt road without a sure sign that I'm headed in the right direction. When I turned off the main road, there was no street name and no GPS directions. Okay, so I'm a little lost and running late. The road narrows as I head deeper into a spruce forest. Finally, I reach its end and pull into a narrow parking spot. A small sign for Rosie Creek Farm assures me I am in the right place. It's decorated with friendly lettering, a dragonfly, and sunflowers. It feels pretty welcoming, except there's also a tall metal fence, a security camera, and a posted warning in red lettering. Restricted access area. All visitors must be accompanied by authorized personnel. Then a tiny Australian shepherd bounds toward the fence, accompanied by his owner, Mike Emmers. Mike is the authorized personnel I need to enter this highly secured space. We thought we were getting a mini Aussie, and he turned out to be a toy. (laughs) He opens the gate and gestures me inside a small building. I sign a guest book and put on a visitor's pass. Feels a little more like visiting a prison than a farm. But that's because Mike's not growing food. He's growing marijuana. You can see all the cameras around here. That's just a little piece of the puzzle. Uh, Every single plant has a tag on it with a barcode. Every single gram of plant material has to be accounted for. You're listening to season two of Out Here. On episode four, a green evolution. I tell people if people valued food as much as they value this crop, we'd still be growing food. On this week's episode, we're heading in a different direction, toward one of Alaska's niche markets. We'll look inside a commercial outdoor marijuana operation, and we'll hear about Mike's evolution from ecologist to vegetable farmer to pot grower. Then we'll talk about how he's seen Alaska's agricultural scene evolve in the 22 years since he started farming. And of course, we'll hear his thoughts on how climate change is influencing his work. You're listening to Out Here, and I'm Erin McKinstry. It's a bluebird day at Rosie Creek Farm outside of Fairbanks. A moose fence dots the perimeter of the seven-acre farm, Beyond that is forest. That's what this place used to look like before Mike started the farm 22 years ago. So this was all raw land? This was all mostly black spruce. Uh, High organic matter underneath the black spruce and we just tilled it in and been working with it for for a very long time. Um, Inside the fence, I see a few high tunnels and some open field. But really, what catches my eyes and my nose are rows of tall green plants. So what you see here is um, mostly marijuana and with a lot of cover crops. And it used to be all organic vegetables. Mike's dog Rusty darts through the neatly spaced rows. I can barely spot him beneath the bushy branches. Rusty! Rusty! Oh, good dog. As we walk, Mike points out different strains of pot, what you'd call a varietal in the vegetable world. But they have more interesting names than your run-of-the-mill pepper or cabbage plants. This is something called Gorilla Glue. I don't name these things. Um, Although 
he does have some he's named himself, like Ice Fog Kush and Alaskan Cabin Fever. One thing that makes Mike kind of unique in this world is that he didn't really know much of anything about growing weed when he started. It was a steep learning curve, and he brought in a grower in the beginning to help. He also relies on trim crews to assist with the harvest and to help him understand a totally different world. There's a certain culture around marijuana that I don't really understand. I, I leave that to my crew. What Mike um, does know is how to grow things. He's a trained ecologist and a veteran Alaska farmer. Growing the plants and learning about the the genetics and, and, and breeding, that's that's sort of my wheelhouse. Knowing how to treat the soil and the soil treating the plants, that's that's what I know how to do. The post-harvest part of it and the processing part of it is something that I was totally unfamiliar with. Mike made the switch from vegetables to weed in 2016. There's no such thing as USDA-certified organic marijuana because growing pot isn't legal federally. But Mike's farm is still organic, and he wanted to bring the same sustainable principles to his new crop. I didn't want to use electricity. I didn't want to use, I didn't want to deal with what they call light deprivation. I wanted to grow plants like I've grown organic vegetables outside. So this is all outdoor growing. It's all grown in the soil, which is unusual in the the pot world. A lot of people can't get their heads around what we're doing. Although this has been the way people have been cultivating plants for thousands of years. A lot of people grow weed inside because for a long time, they had to. It was illegal, and they were trying to hide it. They maximized yield in small spaces using grow lights. But in 2015, Alaska legalized recreational marijuana, opening the doors to a whole new industry. People who'd been operating on the black market no longer had to. Last time I checked, an online database listed over 220 active and operating licenses for cultivation facilities in the state. But that doesn't mean they're all growing outside now. This is a rarity in Alaska. It's not uncommon at all in California or Oregon. Growing weed outside in Alaska comes with its challenges. For one, there's the additional regulations. Mike has to file an odor control plan with the state, and that barrier around the perimeter is a requirement, too. It's so people can't look in and see the pot plants. Another struggle in Alaska is the short growing season. There's the possibility of frost, of course, and marijuana is also susceptible to mold. By the time August rolls around, Fairbanks gets quite a bit of rain. Mike's using high tunnels to extend his growing season so he can get some of the plants out of the ground before that happens. And he's breeding his own types of weed from seed. We've had to create our own, our own genetics that work for our climate. And then there's the midnight sun. For lots of plants, it's fantastic. But the most commonly grown type of marijuana needs 12 hours of darkness to flower, something we don't have in the summer. So Mike's trying something different. He's using a lesser-known type of weed called autoflowering. It doesn't need the darkness, and it flowers more quickly with all the light. A lot of marijuana connoisseurs sort of look down on autoflower. Um, They think it's not as... Not as potent or not as good, but these are grown outdoors in natural soil. You can grow marijuana in a warehouse anywhere in the world. This is a product of the Tanana Valley, and we're proud of it.
This this is Atticus and Tiana Hello. and Justin. Hi. Hello. Hello. How's it going? Three people in work clothes stand around a table snipping long skinny leaves. The sun is shining. One of them has earbuds in. They look happy. Uh, we are big leafing. So we just cut the plants down from the field and now we're going through and clipping out all the leaves that don't have any THC on them, that don't have any crystals. That was Atticus, who helps with the harvest. In July, Mike says, they're just getting started. We will have two crews of five working in shifts pretty much for 30, 40 days trying to harvest that field. This is just the beginning. It'll become very, very crazy out here really soon. And it doesn't stop there. After harvesting and trimming, weed has to be dried and processed. So these plants are drying. We step into a small, dark shed. This is where the weed goes to dry. Mike stops to give Rusty a treat. You want a biscuit? And then pulls a few things off the shelf. In the industry, these are called pre-rolls. They're joints. (laughs) Um, Or we have um, some some trim bud, some of our ice fog kush. All of these extra steps weren't something Mike had to worry about when he was growing vegetables. People often have often asked me, well, how is this different than growing tomatoes? Because I hear tomatoes are really hard to grow. And yes, indeed, tomatoes are really hard to grow. They take a lot of care. Um, they take a lot of pruning um, in, a, in a similar way. But a, a big difference is once I harvest the tomato, I put it in a box and I take it to market and I sell it. Once I harvest this plant, then the work really begins. Rosie Creek Farm still echoes with memories of its vegetable growing past. There's still a small patch for Mike's family. Then as we walk through the open fields, He keeps stopping to point out where things used to be, like an old strawberry patch and a greenhouse for tomatoes. Um, And you can see the old old strings that I I trained the tomatoes up on. Oh, okay. Yeah. So this is full of 320 beefsteak tomatoes um, at one point. Whether the switch was worth it is still up in the air, Mike says. As I got older, I wanted to <laughs> work less, but I'm, I'm laughing now because this is way more work than vegetables ever, ever was. Um, but is it more profitable? Um, the jury's still out uh, right now because we've invested a whole lot into it to get started. So I would say it's probably even right now. <laughs> Do you miss doing all of that? Yeah, I, I do. Um, I miss growing vegetables. But also, I worked my tail off growing vegetables. And we didn't make that much money. It's really hard to compete with, say, Fred Myers, even the organic session, Fred Myers, and, and make, enough, make enough money to live. And so we decided to go to grow a crop that had more value per row foot than anything else that we could grow. Um, Um, What do you miss most about growing vegetables? Growing food for people is incredibly satisfying for me. You really feel like you're an important cog in the community. 
and you're seeing people happy buying it at, at farmers markets. Um, you're able to take from the farm what you need and it feeds you all, all summer and winter. That's incredibly satisfying. But you know, farming, no matter which way you cut it, is a lot of work. People always ask, "Oh, how's your how's your new business doing?" And my answer is, it's still farming. So it's no matter no matter what you do, uh, growing plants especially growing plants outside in Alaska, is challenging, and it's a lot of work. And what do you enjoy about farming in general? There's a lot of satisfaction in seeing, seeing those plants grow and become big and beautiful and knowing that you made that happen. So, yeah. Next up, we'll talk with Mike about how he got into farming in the first place, how he thinks agriculture could grow in Alaska, and how climate change is impacting his farm. farming influences your relationship with the outside world, the natural world, if it does at all? Oh, of course it does. Yeah. You, you have to be in, in tune with that, um, especially farming organically, when you have to be in tune with soil health, and it's really an ecosystem that you're managing. You have to pay attention to the, to the seasons, to the weather, uh, to the climate, to the soil, to what's going on on a daily basis and looking at trends long-term, both seasonally and yearly, trying to plan for that. There's no such thing as a dumb farmer. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying that I'm smart, but you really, to do it well, you have to, you have to juggle a whole lot of things, not only with growing plants and being in tune with the natural world of things, but um, <laughs> I went to my first farming conference, uh, for example, when I was wide-eyed and bushy-tailed, and the first picture of the successful farmer showed was two feet sticking out from under a pickup truck. And he said, farming is mostly about doing things that you'd rather not be doing. <laughs> so fixing your truck because you can't get it to market. The irrigation system went out, so you have to know something about plumbing and probably electricity, too and knowing how to build things. I, I built this one greenhouse that you see and put together these other ones. That challenge is both maddening and satisfying when you, when you get it right. So I do love farming. It is a hell of a lot of work. <laughs> do you mind sharing the story of how you got into farming initially and why you decided to make that jump? So I've always loved growing plants ever since I was I was really little, and my family always had a has, had a garden. But the people I I really looked up to, I guess when when I was a teenager, were people doing homesteading and people growing their own food, and had friends who got into small scale uh, agriculture. I visited them, helped work on on their farms. Just loved the whole process of growing plants. Loved the process of of harvesting it and seeing that in storage and seeing you know, literally the fruits of your labor. So I was working as a botanist for Fish and Wildlife Service in the Arctic Refuge. 
but I still, I, I wanted to do the Alaska thing. I wanted to build my cabin. I wanted to, you know, have my five acres and have my garden. So that's what I did. And then my garden just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And so this is sort of a garden that got out of control. I think I quit my job with Fish and Wildlife in 1997. That's when I started the farm. So I've been working on it ever since. <laughs> what was one of the biggest challenges for you getting started? Well, you're starting, you're starting from scratch here. We're not in an agricultural area where um, you can maybe buy a piece of land that had been cleared. It used to be an old farm or was a farm in production right now and people want to get out. Um, we had to clear this land with bulldozers, burn the, the berm piles, and, and really start the farm out of nothing. Also, you know, getting equipment, getting agricultural equipment, it's a huge challenge up here. Also, the short Alaska season is unforgiving. It's it's absolutely horrible on on uh, your morale sometimes, and 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 the growing season. We've had seasons where we've lost everything. Have you seen um, the growing season change at all since you started farming? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Do you mind talking a little bit about that? Um, you know, not even 10 years ago, we could expect our first hard frost a couple of days either side of August 20th. The last three years, we've gotten our frost almost a month later. I've seen the winters get quite a bit warmer. Like, for example, this year, we had the warmest March on record. Like, not only, you know, the frost around August 20th, but you'd have frost well into May. We, we're not seeing that anymore. This year we didn't see we didn't see freezing temperatures in May hardly. Um, so I could have gotten into the ground a lot sooner than I did. Yeah, and so has that impacted your ability to farm or how you farm at all, or are you still kind of being cautious? No, I'm not cautious at all. Yeah. If I was cautious, I wouldn't be farming. <laughs> so especially up in Alaska of all, of all places. So it's. Um, yeah, it's a big gamble farming, but it's gotten less so with the changing climate. You know, with warming temperatures, there's the possibility of pests overwintering too. So we don't know how that's going to change over time. But, you know, I haven't been up here. I haven't been farming for that long, just, what, 22, 23 years. But even in that short window, I've seen, I've seen a change. Yeah. How have you seen um, agriculture in Alaska change in general, the landscape of it? and um, Around five to seven years ago, there was a big excitement around the locally grown movement. As far as agriculture in Alaska, there was a, around that, there was a huge push and we had farming conferences and I spoke at a lot of them and the USDA's uh, groovy branch, SARE, put a lot of money into trying to figure out how to, no pun intended, grow agriculture bigger in Alaska. Um, I've sort of lost touch with, with a lot of that. I, I think that's uh, still going on, but I see a lot less of that. And the reason is it's too expensive to get into agriculture here. And I feel like a curmudgeon saying this, but I don't see that. It almost has to be state subsidized. 
I think the state government and local governments really have to see the importance of growing food locally and put money into it, helping young farmers buy land. Even in a state where there's so much land, it's unaffordable. People think that we're a big farm, which is almost laughable. You know, this is a small place, um, but nevertheless, uh, I think we, I figured out we could feed about 500 families for the summer. So 500 families, you know, times four, I could feed 2,000 people just for the summer, maybe, maybe root crops going into the winter. But, you know, 2,000 people for Fairbanks, which has 80,000, you would need at least 50 farms my size, I think, in order to feed Fairbanks, which is doable. There's, there's enough land here, 55-acre parcels. That's not, that's not a whole lot. So it's doable, but who's doing it? You know, I think the, the quarter-acre, half-acre market garden is fine, but when we're talking about getting food to the people who are looking at their food-buying dollar, and if you're competing with Fred Meyers or Walmart, you really have to bring the prices down. And so you have to make things efficient, which means you're not doing a CSA where you have 50 different crops that on a half an acre that are hard to keep track of and are inefficient. To make a living doing that, you have to be really efficient, which means being mechanized in some way. And my groovy farm friends would are going to argue against me, but I'm convinced that you have to have a, a certain economy of scale in order to make that economic, to be able to bring prices down so that the people can buy the food, so you're getting food to the people, so you're actually feeding Alaska. There's only so many university professors and professionals that'll buy food at farmer's market or join a CSA. Do you have thoughts about the future of the farm at all? And what you, you know, if you hope to grow it at all, or if you hope to hand it off to your kids at some point? I don't think the kids are too interested in what we're doing right now. And that's the one incredibly sad thing about um changing over from vegetables is the kids can't come onto the farm anymore. So the kids have lost interest in what we're doing. Um, and that's that's really sad. We tried to get it so that we could partition off part of the farm so that we can still have our vegetable operation and the kids could still help with that. The state didn't buy that at all. They said, no, no way. You can't do that. So what's the future? I, I'm getting older. Um, I don't want to do this forever. Farming is a lot of hard work physically. We've climbed a really steep learning curve on how to grow this crop, and it's we're just starting to see it pay off. So within another five years, I'd like to either pass it on to somebody uh, as far as a sale or make enough money so that we could we could be retired from this. Um, so and then have a big vegetable garden again and, and have, get and out have a small vegetable garden. <laughs> yeah. You've been listening to Out Here, a podcast about life in rural Alaska. You can listen to more episodes at www.outherepodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Blue Dot Sessions and my brother Sam McKinstry for the music. Thanks to Ian Giori for the artwork and the Rasmussen Foundation for the funding. 
Also, a special bonus with this episode. Head to our website to view a photo essay of Pete and Lynn Mayo from Spinach Creek Farm. They're friends of Mike's, and they run a vegetable farm outside of Fairbanks. Pete is known by some as the Carrot King. The Tanana Valley is one of the original farming areas in Alaska. Its hot and dry summer climate and rich soils full of organic matter have made it a site for all kinds of farming experiments, like apple and grain growing. Thanks for listening. Till next time. For Out Here, I'm Mary McKinstry.